Hey everybody, this is Dan Clydman, co-host of Skullduggery. Before we began recording this episode of the podcast, we had not yet learned that President Trump had fired Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Trump, who had repeatedly and very publicly shamed Sessions over his handling of the Russia probe, announced the news on Twitter. A nation divided against itself cannot stand. So said Abraham Lincoln as he stood on the steps of the Illinois State Capitol in 1858 and warned that the country could not long survive half slave and half free. But more than 160 years later, Lincoln's basic premise that a nation sorely divided over core issues of governance and morality cannot function is about to be tested in ways it rarely has since the Civil War. Election night 2018 proved a harsh reminder of just how divided as a country we really are. In Senate races, Donald Trump's America triumphed as Republicans closely aligned with the president booted out Democratic incumbents in red states and strengthened the party's hold on the upper chamber. But in the House, the Democrats, most of whom fundamentally reject the president and everything he stands for, recaptured control with a decisive victory, giving them new powers to investigate and subpoena Trump's administration and hold it accountable. Get ready for the rumble. Washington is now divided against itself. It's our subject on this episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia is a ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Okay, uh, Clydman, uh, what is your take? Well, look, uh, the last thing I'd want to do is be gleeful about um, where things are headed in terms of uh, all of the investigations that are going to happen. Uh, I am glad that Skullduggery is here because uh, there's going to be a lot of important work for us to do. There are going to be investigations on many fronts. Uh, I think uh, we can probably figure out some of the lines of inquiry now, but my guess is there are going to be many more. You've got 21 committees in Congress that the Democrats will now control. They will have the gavel and they will have subpoena power. And there is just a whole new investigative landscape that, you know, the Democrats will use for political purposes and uh, to hurt the president and to help Democrats in the march to the presidential election in 2020. But they will also be playing an important oversight role. And uh, undoubtedly, they are going to expose you know, new examples of corruption and malfeasance and, dare I say, skullduggery. And the question is, how strategic will they be? Will they be smart about it or will they overplay their hands? All they need to do, I think, is look back at uh, what the Republicans did the last Obama term. They they don't want to be the party of Benghazi in the same way that the Republicans were. They, they, I think they right. do have to be careful. 
Yeah, we're going to be talking about this with our new colleague, uh, Jenna McLaughlin, who's uh, done some reporting on what the uh, Democrats' agenda is for investigations. But it strikes me that there are, you know, number one, there is so much material for them to investigate, whether it be uh, Ryan Sinke at the Interior Department or Wilbur Ross and the, at the Commerce Department and the, uh, the citizenship question that was put into the census. But of course, you know, front and center is going to be Russia. And I, um, I think, you know, we could see a huge explosion on that. You know, the president has had his post-election press conference in which he once again railed about the Mueller investigation, railed about the investigations into him and Russia, denied any collusion. But all expectations are we're going to be seeing some uh, movement by Mueller very possibly very quickly, another indictment coming likely against Roger Stone, certainly it looks that way, and then Mueller's report, which he has been working on for you know over a year and a half now, and no reason that he needs any more time to complete it. So, you know, we could see some real fireworks uh, very soon on that front. And I think the other thing to remember, now that they will have subpoena power, is there a lot of people, current administration officials and former or soon to be former administration officials who they'll be able to bring up and have them testify. They've never really been able to go at, you know, Rod Rosenstein. They've never really been able to go uh, at, at Comey while they were in the majority. And that makes a difference. So I expect uh, that we will see kind of a parade of witnesses uh, come forward who will tell stories that have not been told before that could be damaging to the president. Look, this gets to my personal hobby horse, which is the way the intelligence committees and the uh, uh, judiciary committee in the Senate has conducted the Russia investigations. In, right, in secret, all, in secret. All of it behind closed doors, in secret, no public testimony. Even the transcripts haven't been released to the public of what was testified to behind closed doors. And this is unlike every presidential major scandal we have seen in the country for decades, Watergate, around. Contra, Whitewater, you name it, always public hearings, always people being called up to testify, fact witnesses called up to testify under oath before the TV cameras. So the American public can make its own uh, evaluation about uh, what happened and the credibility of key witnesses. None of that has happened in this case. And in my book, it's uh, completely outrageous that the investigations have been conducted this way. Hopefully, Adam Schiff, the uh, new uh, chairman of House Intelligence Committee will change all that. I don't think there's I don't think there's any any doubt that he will. And look, it, it is a great example of elections having consequences. And for people who care about accountability and for people who care about transparency, um, this, I think, is you're exactly right to point this out. I think this is an important uh, inflection point, And I think we will see Many of these uh, investigations aired much more publicly. I think that's a good thing for the country, not just for skullduggery. Let me just uh, make a couple more points uh, about the election that uh, I think people should keep in mind. You know, we are all focused on, you know, what the Democrats are going to do in the House, where these investigations are going to go, who's going to get subpoenaed. But those Senate results ought to be pretty sobering for Democrats as well. And um, I just want to throw out 
two names of people we should uh, all be thinking about, uh, and one is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, age 85, Stephen Breyer, age 80. Two octogenarians, the uh, last, uh, you know, the, the two liberals, two of the four liberal stalwarts on the Supreme Court, if any of them has to step down in the uh, next two years, there will be nothing to stop Donald Trump from putting a, another hardcore conservative on the Supreme Court and lock in that conservative majority, which could have much longer impact on American society than anything the Democrats do in hearings in the next two years. I think we had, when we had uh, Ron Klain on Skullduggery, uh, the veteran Democratic strategist and veteran of many Supreme Court confirmation hearings when uh, Justice Kennedy retired, we got into this a little bit, and he made the point that there were already uh, many uh, liberals out there who were offering uh, to to uh, to give up their own organs to keep uh, uh, <laughs> Justice Ginsburg yeah. and, per- <laughs> and perhaps Justice uh, Breyer alive. I think that's going to go into overdrive yeah. now. That really... Um, is a hugely consequential thing, and and it's certainly a possibility that that could happen in the next in the next year. Right. And uh, one other point uh, I think we should uh, bring up, and that is uh, President Trump's uh, post-election press conference in which he seemed uh, humble and uh, and filled with humility about the election results uh, and As reached always. out. And reached out to us in the press to try to mend fences. I am speaking completely sarcastically, of course. Uh, The president was as aggressive as ever, tried to uh, have the microphone taken away from Jim Acosta, denounced him for uh, fake news and CNN, and uh, also took sort of cheap shots at all the House Republicans that lost, saying that uh, they were at fault because they didn't support him enough. It did not sound like a president who was trying to bring the country together at uh, at all but i my favorite moment of course was uh, uh when our own hunter walker questioned the president about reports that he has personally used racist language and i believe we have that clip it would be great to play it um, first off i personally think it's very good to have you here because a free press and this i type do of too engagement, actually i do too yes it's vital to it's called earned media it's worth billions go ahead um, so I have two questions for you, if that's all right. It's a rare opportunity. Um, first, just a point of clarification on the tax returns issue. Um, you brought up the audit. That doesn't prevent you from releasing them. I know. The, I, oh, sure. Right. That, it, I didn't say it prevented me. I said lawyers will tell you not to do it. But go if ahead. The, What's the, your next question? Go if, ahead. Come well, on. Let's go. Just on that, More exciting okay. question than that, please. Second one. Um, Michael Cohen recently said you called black voters stupid. That's false. Omarosa has accused you of using the N-word. And the, rapper, the rapper Little John has said you called him Uncle Tom. What's your response? I, I don't know who Little John is. I don't, I really he was don't. on The Apprentice. I don't know. Oh, he was? Okay. Yeah. Oh, I see. Have you ever made racist know. remarks? No, no, I would never do that, and I don't use racist and, remarks. And you know what? If I did, you people have, you would have known about it. I've been hearing there are tapes for years and years. There are tapes. Number one, I never worried about it because I never did. I never used racist remarks. I have never used racist remarks. Okay. Well, one point of fact. Go ahead. You have, no, no, one, one point of Go fact, ahead. because you told her you have quiet, the highest quiet, approval among African-Americans. It's just 8%, sir, single digits. See, when you talk about division, it's people like this that cause division. Great division. Great. No, no, point of fact is that I never used a racist remark. That's the point of fact. Where, who are you from? Um, I'm from Yahoo News. Yahoo, Yahoo, you? No, good. Good. I hope they're, I hope they're doing well. 
<laughs> I, I love that. Uh, those two lines there, it's people like this uh, who are causing this great division, people like our Hunter Walker uh, asking uh, tough questions of the president. But that last line uh, about Yahoo, I hope they're doing well. Uh, was that a threat, you think? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I don't know if we uh, rely on FCC licenses uh, the way Richard Nixon took away, tried to take away uh, CBS's FCC li- license during the Watergate era. All I'm going to say is it's, it is yeah. not going to cow us. So we will be uh, reporting as aggressively on this president as our listeners just heard uh, Hunter Walker doing, and uh, good for him. Awesome. Awesome. So here we are in the aftermath of what Barack Obama called the most important midterm election of our lifetime. And uh, we're still trying to sort out what it all means. But we are fortunate to have with us to help uh, break down the numbers and and, uh, understand uh, the significance of this election and the results. uh, Joel Benenson, who is the founder and CEO of Benenson Strategy Group. And uh, I think the only Democrat in history to have played a leading role in three winning presidential campaigns. So, Joel, thank you so much for being here. Happy to happy to do it. So, all right, let's just start with your takeaways. What you expected and what what surprised you in the results uh, that are still coming in, but I think we have a pretty good picture of what happened um, on Tuesday night. You know, I think there are some surprises. I think um, overall this played out pretty much as I always expected it would, that Democrats would take back the House. I had, uh, you know, was still waiting for final numbers, I think, but I had said I about 30 seats, I thought, was, was the max we would get to. Which, by the I way, thought, which, by the way, th- sorry to interrupt you, but that's really sort of the historical average. The out party in midterm elections tends, you know, I think going back to Roosevelt, on average, gets about 30 seats. Right. And we were also up against significantly gerrymandered district lines. So, you know, the possibility for, you know, some people who talk about 45, 50 seats, I, I just think that, you know, what happened since 2010 when the Republicans had their levers on state legislatures and governorships, it was virtually going to be impossible to get to those kinds of numbers. So I think 30, you know, was a significant uh, achievement. And and as far as the Senate, you know, my metaphor all the way through was that we were drawing to an inside straight. And I said that in poker, you know, if you're if you're doing that, you're damn lucky if you win and you're a fool if you bet on it, because the odds are so stacked against you. The probabilities are, are slim. And that was just a, a, a fact of the map. You know, when you're defending 23 or 24 seats and the other side is only defending nine, it's going to be a, a steep mountain to climb. So. To me, there were no massive surprises. However, on the bright side, I would say picking up seven governorships, particularly in key battleground states as we head into 2020, like Wisconsin, Michigan, Nevada, uh, upsetting, you know, one of the architects of leading architects of voter suppression in Kansas, uh, Chris Kobach, and and winning there uh, in the governor's race there. You know, I think those things are significant, and I think having seven governorships going forward also will help the Democrats uh, in 2020. Yeah, but uh, Joel, I want to uh, just uh, d- drill down on the Senate uh, races for a moment because uh, 
Yeah, you were running in, in tough battleground states for, for Democrats, red states all, but you lost almost everyone that was competitive. And uh, I don't think anybody expected you to lose across the board like that. What's your explanation for that? And then I want to ask you something about your business as well on that. But, you know, was it Kavanaugh that made the difference? Um, how did you lose so many of those close competitive Senate races? Well, a lot of them are in states that people consider red, you know. I mean, like, you know, John Tester is behind by a small amount in, in Montana, narrow state, a tough state. Um, Democrats have done very well historically in Senate races there. But, you know, that's a that's a razor thin margin. We can go through some of the others. We can go through them state by state if you want. You know, some of them were, were quite close. And I think when you're looking at states that are structurally more, even though they're swing states, that they are a little more uh, red than blue and lean that way, uh, you've got to overcome some obstacles coming out of there to win. So do you, do you accept a, that Kavanaugh made the difference, that that's what uh, put the Republicans over the top in those states? The backlash um, no, against I, I the way the Democrats handled the, the Kavanaugh. Look, uh, I, I, I think before, before, it, look, if you if you want to, you know, let's, who do you want? You want to talk about Claire McCaskill? There isn't a Democrat who wouldn't have told you that Claire was vulnerable before Brett Kavanaugh was ever nominated to the Supreme Court. So, you know, I think you've got to really do an honest assessment on a state by state basis and say there were states that the Democrats knew that we were going to be playing defense in on the Senate map from the very beginning. And that's the reality of the math. So, but Joel, that, that um, raises kind of a larger structural question, which is, are, are these red state Democrats, these conservative Democrats running in red states, are, are they uh, kind of moving toward extinction the way that moderate Republicans have been moving toward extinction and are basically no. extinct now? Look, I, I think that you're going to have states, you know, if you look at, you know, House races and you look at Romney-Trump districts, right? There were 34, I think, Romney-Trump districts, and I think Democrats have done well in 20 of them or one in 20 of them, right? If you look at, you know, the, the big focus on Obama-Trump House districts, right, um, and I think there were 21 in all, and I think Democrats won 14 of those. Look, I think what the truth here is is that Democrats need to continue to make and and we probably we we haven't reached the culmination point of this yet, but where we are winning and making changes in the map, uh, including you know being able to win governors' races in states like knocking off Walker in Wisconsin, picking up Michigan, Kansas, knocking out someone like Chris Kobach, is we have to continue to make inroads with. Uh, educated suburban voters and growing metropolitan areas. Um, that task is not completed yet. We're in the process of that. And so I think when you look at places where we took back governorships, even in Nevada, uh, or Democrats winning in Maine or Kansas, defeating Walker, who's been there for, you know, uh, going for a third term, and had won fairly easily both times, and defeated a recall measure. Um, so I think that you know, that's what we have to concentrate on. I think that's how we expand our map and expand our reach. And I don't think that is a one cycle project. Let's talk about Florida for a moment. And I mentioned your business, which is polling. The last weekend, Quinnipiac had a poll that had Nelson up seven points outside the margin of error. 
And yet, uh, from all signs, uh, right now, he narrowly lost. How do you explain that? And what does it say about the state of polling right now when a major poll can be that far off in a major race? Well, look, uh, I'll, I'll be quite honest with you. I mean, here, here's the battle, and Michael, you probably heard me say this before, but if you go back and look at what the real clear politics average was in the, in the Florida race yeah. at the end, it had Nelson up 2.4, not what Quinnipiac had. And what you have to do, in my mind, when you look at um, all the, the plethora of polling that we're drowning under, is really not focus on the individual polls, number one. And a lot of times, like you've probably seen me tweet out about Donald Trump's approval ratings, I tend to throw out the outliers. You know, there was one that had his approval rating plus one the other day, which was a Rasmussen poll that all also had the generic ballot even, which was suspect on its face. But I threw that out just as I threw out the Quinnipiac poll, I believe it was, that had Trump's approval rating at 14 or 15 under. And then I looked at the most recent 10 without those, right? So I think you have to stop reporting every poll as if they're tracking polls. Look, this is a media problem, not a polling problem. If I look, yeah, at, the, I... If I look at real clear politics right now, okay, mm-hmm. two of the last four polls had Scott ahead and two of the last four polls had Nelson ahead. Right, right. right. So this, this does go to a conversation, uh, I don't know if you remember, but you and I have had before, in which, uh, you know, I just take myself as an example. I'm unpollable. We get bombarded with phone calls at home from telemarketers right. all the time, and we basically don't answer the phone if it's not somebody we know. And one of those people we're not answering the phones uh, from are, you know, people like you who are calling, trying to find out what we think. You can't find out what we think because we won't respond to those polls. Well, so uh, that is a very fair point. That's a challenge for the industry. At my firm, we have spent this year um, investing in developing more hybrid methodologies uh, that combine phone and online, and we think we've got that figured out. We didn't operationalize them entirely in this um, cycle. We tested them in this cycle. Uh, But going forward, I think people are going to have to do that. There are people who are reachable much more easily on their uh, mobile phones for surveys. Uh, which I, I don't, I don't answer those either. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine, yeah. Michael. But look, yeah. I, I tend to not do polls either unless I'm particularly yeah. curious, but that, that's the point of a random sample. You don't need to reach everybody you contact. You need to have a reasonable response rate. What's happening in phone-only polls right now is the response rates are uh, well below the point of uh, reasonableness. Now, I will tell you, with that, my firm polled in Nevada on a ballot initiative, mm-hmm. and we were polling in um, we would poll in the in the governor's race and the Senate race also. I will tell you, and and keep in mind, Nevada has only seven hundred thousand, eight hundred thousand voters. It's a state of one point seven million people, right? That is a very shallow pool to swim in. And our polling in both the ballot initiative we were involved in and our forecast of both the governor's race and um, the Senate race in that state were spot on. Joel, you, so you just alluded to this, uh, but we should just uh, point out that uh, your, your firm and you personally had clients in this cycle. You uh, represented yes. Senator Bob Menendez, uh, who, yes. uh, who was victorious in New Jersey. But I, I wanted to move on and ask you about this new House of Representatives controlled by the Democrats, um, 
Nancy Pelosi will likely be uh, the the speaker once again, although she may be challenged. What is your advice uh, to Democrats going forward? How should they play their hand now that they've got uh, got one of the two chambers and, and are governing again in Washington? Well, I think I think there are a couple of things that were very um, loomed large over this cycle. Okay, first and foremost, that you can't ignore is Donald Trump. Okay. They are going to maintain the Senate. The Republicans are going to continue to push through judges that Trump nominates when he's got openings. Um, And it is going to be difficult for Democrats to stop that. On the other hand, anyone who thinks this election was not a referendum on Trump is mistaken. And when you look at the House vote, you know, Democrats won significantly on the national House vote. And they won with women by about 20 points in the national House vote, and we only lost men by four points. So my view to the Democrats would be to proceed very carefully, but thoughtfully, the investigations into Trump corruption, uh, which we have seen in multiple cabinet departments already, taking a look at emoluments and the tax returns is a very legitimate area of inquiry, but don't overplay your hand there. I think what you have to do, and now that you're in control of one house, is focus on people's lives. Healthcare was an issue that played over and over again around the country in many of these state races. And I think it's an indication that people are still feeling economic tensions. I think we had a lot of ballot initiatives around the country, even in some purple and red states, raising the minimum wage, uh, expanding Medicaid. I think there were real clues there as to what the federal government ought to be doing uh, to help people. Um, still manage what is a period of fairly stagnant wages so that working Americans uh, lift up uh, in their economic lives. And those are the things I would focus on and use that pressure with a uh, fairly uh, narrow majority that the Republicans will have in the Senate to uh, force a change uh, on uh, on the Republican agenda and put working people more front and center. But look, you know there's going to be enormous pressure from the Democratic base to be extremely aggressive in going after the president on every front, from his tax returns to the to Russia, uh, to his financial interests uh, in his businesses. How do you, you said you want the Democrats to be judicious. I, uh, are you confident that they can be given the pent up anger in your base towards this president? Well, I think in this environment where if you're going to be strategic about it, Donald Trump has demonstrated an ability and probably a strength in being able, and he's the president of the United States, to dominate the news cycle such as it exists, right? He can do with a tweet what no individual member of Congress can do. Okay, so let's, let's give him that and probably not even what a groundswell of members in Congress can do with a tweet. So I think you have to be surgical and smart and find things that will penetrate the cacophony of noise that's out there every day, not throw a lot of mud at the wall, uh, throw a lot of paint at the wall and see what sticks. I think what you have to do is find the things that are going to be meaningful to people and matter to them about where the corruption is, where the abuses are, and concentrate on those. It's more of a surgical approach than a carpet bombing approach. And I think that will be more effective because if we can do that and find those areas of meaning, what you want to do is keep 
them on defense every day and not create you know alleyways that they can go down to escape because we're throwing too much stuff for people to absorb out there as a practical matter do the results in the senate take impeachment off the table look i think that uh if i'm a democrat right now i think if you find things that you believe in the house first of all i mean yeah you don't have two-thirds of a vote you would have to find something egregious to be able to pursue impeachment but i don't think impeachment is an electoral strategy Impeachment has been done very rarely in our country's history for a reason. It should be done very rarely. Um, If you want to defeat Donald Trump in 2020, the focal point of that should not be impeachment. The focal point of that should be building a stronger Democratic majority than we did last night and in places where we need to win in 2020. I think there are ways in which Donald Trump, maybe in the founder's mind, is already betraying the trust of his office. Um, that could be impeachable, but uh, you know I don't think that should be mission one when the Democratic House gets to work when they go back to work. So Joel, uh, before we, and I may be a minority voice in the party on that, but I think we've got a lot of other business to attend to. I don't think people sent the Democratic majority to the House of Representatives to impeach Donald Trump. I think they sent them there to fight on their behalf every day and work to improve their lives every day. And if we do that, we'll earn their votes again in 2020. So, Joel, uh, speaking of 2020, before we let you go, I want to ask you about uh, the presidential race, because, of course, uh, it it begins, or at least we all start talking about it the day after the the midterm election. So is there anything that you kind of extrapolate from from this election that sheds light on 2020 and what kind of a a candidate Democratic Party should nominate to take on Trump? There's been this debate within the party about whether you go for the bold progressive or someone who is, you know, more centrist. What what do you glean from these results that kind of helps you uh, think about uh, that debate within the party? I, I mean, look, I have always believed that, you know, neither party has a majority in this country. You know, Republicans don't have a majority. Democrats don't have a majority. You can win a majority at the elections, right? Ideologically, no ideological thread has a majority. You know, right now, you've got liberals, you've got conservatives, and you've got moderates. And, you know, the pluralities tend to fall more in the middle. Neither party can get to majorities without winning people in the middle. I think you have to find the values uh, that shape people's lives, that they hold dearly, economically, socially, culturally, and find those unifying themes that run through the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and through the moderate centrist wing of the Democratic Party. And that's how you build durable majorities in this country. Left or right don't tend to build durable majorities. The people who can bring the center over to their cause can create a more durable majority, and we need to do that. And I think we showed last night, by the way, that where we're making inroads into these highly educated suburbs around cities and turning places like Kansas, um, getting the governorship back in Wisconsin, winning the governorship, the Senate race in Nevada, places like that are actually, I think, the roadmap for starting to build a more durable majority for people who are uh, left and left of center and some in the center. Well, given- sounds like sounds like a case for Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think um, we're a long way from figuring out 
who the right candidate will be. I think there will be um, probably a, a mix of candidates um, who will assess this and emerge. I think some will be probably surprising players and some will be the predictable names. I think you're going to be, you know, you'll see people like Joe Biden who are an incredibly strong and popular figure in the Democratic Party and who's been in the trenches. And I think you'll probably see some new faces emerge. You know, I would not underestimate and I'm not saying he will do this, but, you know, if you look at what Beto O'Rourke did in the state of Texas last night, you know, a year ago, if anybody would have told you that we could get in within two points of defeating Ted Cruz in Texas, I think a lot of people would have said, you're crazy, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but he ran a very strong campaign. You know, he, his name is on the map. I'm not saying he'll run for president, but I think there will be people with different kinds of energies and different kinds of skills that will be in the Democratic primaries. And keep in mind, it is a long haul between now and then. People will start soon. The, the, the jockeying for position and getting in and raising the money it takes to win uh, will start in early 2019. Well, uh, given your success uh, over the years in backing the right presidential horses, we uh, a lot of people will be watching to see who you might end up working for. Joel Benenson, thank you so much for joining us on Skullduggery. Thank you. Nice to talk to you, Dan and Mike. Okay. Take, take care, Joel. <laughs> take care. Bye-bye. Uh, well, Clement, I think you were a little too nice to him. You neglected to point out that uh, Joel was also the chief strategist for Hillary Clinton in 2016, and that didn't turn out so well. You're right about that. I was just being a gentleman, Mike. Why? <laughs> <laughs> this is skullduggery. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, good cop, bad cop. All right. All right. Joining us now is Jenna McLaughlin, the latest member of the Yahoo News reporting team. She is uh, the national security and investigations correspondent in the Washington Bureau. Stepping into the, the batter's box, she hit a towering home run, their first story, with uh, a freelance contributor, uh, Zach Dorfman, which we're going to get to um, in a minute. Really an extraordinary piece of reporting about how a uh, covert intelligence communication system was uh, compromised that the CIA had that led to uh, the death of dozens of uh, agents, um, probably the worst uh, intelligence failure since 9-11. Just an amazing uh, story. But before we get to that, Jenna and uh, her colleague Alec Nazarian uh, have a piece up uh, that went up right after the election about how the uh, investigations landscape in Congress has uh, altered now that uh, the Democrats have taken back uh, the House. It's a really um, interesting piece, which we want to talk to you about. So let's just get to that uh, for a minute, and then we'll get to your uh, your great intelligence story. So your story was, was interesting to me. You spent a lot of time talking to people up on the Hill, to Democrats, uh, to uh, staffers uh, working for some of the uh, chairmen of the various committees that are going to be uh, investigating the Trump administration. Tell us a little bit about what you learned, because it sounds like the Democrats have already sort of thought through their strategy, and it may surprise some people. For sure. I mean, the Democrats were seeing the same polls that we were seeing, and those turned out to be largely accurate. Uh, so they've been mapping out some of the things that they wanted to, to do and hit the ground running. Uh, because intelligence and national security is sort of my specialty, I especially looked at the House Intelligence Committee, where uh, Representative Adam Schiff is likely to be the new chairman. Um, and he's been one of the most prominent voices on Trump-Russia. He's 
often on TV speaking about that and uh, sort of demanding further investigation. So we're likely to see a little bit more of that from him. However, he's probably not going to step on the toes of Sissy and, and Mueller. So he's also likely to return to additional oversight of the intelligence community. He's going to look at Saudi Arabia and the Khashoggi killing. He's going to look at, you know, things like clearances, a lot of things that have sort of slipped under the radar uh, with the chairmanship of, of Devin Nunes. And then you all got some um, interesting comments from Elijah Cummings, uh, the uh, Democrat from Maryland, who will be the new chairman of the House Oversight Committee, which is uh, one of the most important investigative committees on the Hill. What What did he tell you? Absolutely. So he is there to just really dig into a lot of the areas that Americans will care about. Um, oversight of Trump's finances, of uh, his interpersonal relationships, things with his cabinet, uh, questions that people have been asking for quite some time. I, I want to, uh, Jenna, it's Mike, I want to pick up on that a little bit, because in your piece, you quote uh, Henry Waxman, the former chairman of the House Oversight Committee, uh, giving some advice to Cummings and the Democrats in the House, saying, do not get personal against Donald Trump. Focus your investigations on matters, on issues that voters care about that affect their lives, their bottom lines. Um, and that seemed like sage advice. But I read Cummings' statement today after the, uh, the Democratic victory. And um, he says, I plan to shine a light on waste, waste, fraud, and abuse in the Trump administration. Then he goes on to say, I want to probe senior administration officials across the government who have abused their positions of power, wasted taxpayer money, that's fine, as well as President Trump's decisions to act in his own financial self-interest rather than the best interest of the American people. That sounds like targeting the president personally, exactly the opposite of what Henry Waxman was saying the Democrats should not do. It certainly does. And I mean, I assume that he'll have some conversations with his colleagues and Nancy Pelosi. And we've been hearing a lot about bipartisanship. So he may dial that back. Uh, that's unclear. But uh, he will absolutely get the opportunity to sort of hire a lot of people as well. Um, so I think maybe he'll continue to map out that strategy. But, yeah, that seems to be contrary to the advice. Yeah, I mean, but this gets to the larger issue of whether the Democrats will be able to uh, restrain themselves, uh, given where their base is, given the actions and behavior of this president. Um, and, you know, uh, certainly we can all expect subpoenas. We can all expect investigative hearings. But how far do they go? Uh, do they go back into the Russia ties from the campaign? Uh, do they go out? after the president's personal business. I think we certainly can expect the tax returns. But, you know, what's your sense of how they're going to navigate uh, how aggressive to be in these investigations? So speaking to some of the staffers that work on these issues, particularly with intelligence, I think that there is sort of this mutual agreement between the committees uh, that, you know, it's not going to be a rehash of the entire Russia investigation, which I think many people might be wondering if that's going to happen. Um, although it's it's unclear, I mean, Adam Schiff is a very outspoken voice on this issue, and he may not be able to kind of help himself from from delving into that. And he'll come under pressure because there'll be more revelations. There'll be a Mueller report. There'll be 
you know, scoops in the New York Times and and uh, and the Washington Post and Yahoo News, I hope. And so it's easy for them to talk about this kind of more sober strategy uh, as as they take over the House. But as Mike was pointing out before, um, it, it's a little bit harder uh, once uh, some of these revelations come out and they come under more uh, pressure from uh, from their base. But one thing I'm and I don't really know the answer to this, but I think that you mentioned the tax returns, Isakoff. Uh, yes. I, might, I think that Congress will be able to subpoena those tax returns. I'm not sure which committee. Is it Ways and Means? Is there another committee? Will that? Will that uh, I think it's Ways and Means. And then will there be a legal fight? I mean, I think Trump has continued to say that he's uh, not going to turn over those tax returns because he's still under audit. Is that going to doesn't seem to me that that'll have any any sway with uh, with a Democratic Congress. I, let's get past the generalities, though. I mean, I'll give you one that I suspect they will go after, and and just reading coming statement uh, bolsters that. And that's you know the whole emoluments issue. There are lawsuits on this. Uh, Judge Massetti in Maryland just gave the green light for discovery for the plaintiffs. Uh, the plaintiffs in that case are the Maryland attorney. General, the Washington, D.C. Attorney General, to uh, seek records on the president's uh, business and the uh, funds it's gotten from foreign governments at the Trump Hotel. The Qatari government held a, held a um, uh, an event there. The Saudis, as we previously discussed, poured money into the Trump Hotel, buying up uh, uh, rooms for veterans to lobby against uh, the JASTA bill. Um, I suspect because it's a live issue and it's one in which the Democrats do have a strong hand. The- uh, the president shouldn't be running a personal business while he's trying to run the country, that that's one where we'll see some aggressive moves early on. I, I agree. I think that the Democrats are going to end up focusing on corruption rather than uh, Russia, unless there are new revelations that come out. They're going to be looking at emoluments, personal enrichment, Trump using the government to advance his business interests. That's where I think they're going to aim their investigative uh, firepower as opposed to Russia, barring um, new revelations or a Mueller report. And I'll tell you one thing that I don't think they will be investigating, and I think that's clearer coming out of uh, this midterm election. You know, Jerry Nadler, who's going to be likely to be the new chair of the House Judiciary Committee, talked about uh, investigating Kavanaugh, some of these allegations of sexual misconduct against against Kavanaugh and leading up to, you know, possibly uh, impeachment proceedings against Kavanaugh. That's just not going to happen. If you look at yeah, that's, that's if, not going if, if you look at the these uh, Senate races, all of these Democrats in red states who likely went down, at least in, in considerable part because of the positions they took on Kavanaugh, the idea that uh, that they would then gin up investigations on Kavanaugh just strikes me as uh, very unlikely, if not uh, you know, impossible. Yeah, and look, I would just add another big loser in this election um, who spent a hell of a lot of money is Tom Steyer, who made it all about impeachment, who said that's what the Democrats had to focus on. And you look at those Senate results and it's hard to see uh, how that has any prospect of going anywhere absent some major, unbelievable smoking gun uh, revelations from Bob Mueller. Okay, let's move on to, uh, to Jenna. Uh, extraordinary scoop. I think really one of the most important intelligence stories uh, that I've seen in Washington in in quite some time. So I want you to kind of lay it out for us. But in essence, 
the CIA was relying on a not terribly sophisticated covert communication system in, that they were using to uh, communicate with informants and their spies around the world, um, and it was compromised, uh, leading to a real intelligence disaster. So just tell us the story, and then we'll get into it. Absolutely. So this all takes us back to around 2007, 2008, um, the CIA routinely uses defense contractors to sometimes procure this type of technology to communicate with its sources. This internet-based covert communications uh, platform, yes, it was not sophisticated. It was kind of meant to hide in plain sight uh, to make sort of first contact with sources on the ground, uh, particularly in Iran is one area we know that it was used and kind of where our story starts. Um, so because it was sort of hiding in plain sight, the Iranians were able to discover at least one of the websites uh, first through a double agent. But once they were able to see one of the websites uh, by using that URL, they were able to essentially Google their way to a lot of the rest of them, um, which was catastrophic. It led to many of the sources being rolled up. So many they of just them, used... To, yeah. Well, go ahead. They, many of the sources it being was rolled up and, and killed. So they right. just used the same search engine that we all use to, yep. exp- to expose, uh, you know, one of the most uh, sensitive uh, communication systems uh, in, uh, you know, that, that the CIA uses. I mean, there's nothing more sensitive than communicating with agents who they do everything possible to protect, right? There's nothing, right. those are the, the real crown jewels in, in intelligence, in the intelligence business is, is sources. Right, right, exactly. And, you know, you could get a book from Barnes & Noble, uh, which could tell you how to do advanced Google searching. So how do you explain search this? Terms. I mean, how do you explain that they even relied on uh, this kind of communica- covert communication system that, that is no longer covert? So there are absolutely reasons that this kind of technology is necessary in places like Iran, like China, where we don't have established diplomatic relations. It's really difficult for us to get people inside there. Um, so we sometimes do need to rely on things that are not that secure. However, the system was not meant to be used for the long term. Um, And the way it was described to us is that people more uh, relied on it more than they should have. And it got to the point that, you know, they ended up being discovered because of that. Jenna, Jenna, remind me, when when did this take place? When was the compromise and when did the CIA learn of it? So the compromise itself when people were actually being imprisoned and rolled up and killed was around 2011 2012 however Mm -hmm. sources started behaving strangely not responding to messages uh disappearing as far back as 2008 2009 so this is while petraeus was cia director yes did it come to his attention I imagine that it should have, uh, because there was a whistleblower who worked on the contract from SAIC named John Reedy, who specifically brought the issue to many people's attention uh, within the agency, leadership at the CIA, as well as um, the uh, House Intelligence Committee. But the CIA is uh, historically not particularly receptive to uh, whistleblowers and uh, doesn't historically act on their complaints. Uh, what happened as a res- after this compromise was discovered? Was there an internal investigation by the CIA? Was it reported to the uh, Senate and House Intelligence Committees? Um, did anybody uh, launch an inquiry to discover what had happened and who was at fault? So the answer to that is eventually. Um, There was a massive investigation once a lot of people died in China that got people's attention. 
however, it had been sort of a lingering issue prior to that. But once a lot of people died, there was a big interagency investigation between CIA, FBI, and House Intelligence were aware of it as well. And has there been any accountability? Uh, So that's a great question. It doesn't appear to me that that's the case. We heard some rumblings that certain senior officials were moved out of their roles. Uh, Some people may have had different jobs, but there was no sort of public firing or um, accountability internally that that we're aware of that really sort of left. uh, Were were the oversight committees informed? Yes, um, I I believe that they were. uh, But it was primarily an issue that stuck with with House Intelligence. They were the ones that dealt with it. So this, uh, so this was uh, De- Devin Nunes's job to get to the bottom of it then? No, uh, it was Mike Rogers that was chairing the committee then who was primarily responsible. And what does he say about it? I had not, I did not get specifically to Mike Rogers. He was unavailable for comment at the time. Uh-huh. Well, I, I mean, this does strike me as something that uh, ought to be of great concern to the oversight committees. Uh, and to, it's the kind of thing you would think they would want to know everything about. You know, unfortunately, and this is the problem with uh, intelligence matters, unless it hits the news, uh, unless it's on the front pages or gets reported in places like Yahoo News, nobody pays attention. There's this this sort of instinctive uh, uh, reaction of just sort of letting it go. Don't don't make it public. Uh, don't rock the boat. And it sounds to me like that's what happened here. Right. I mean, because the entire story is so sensitive and there are so many different overlapping pieces to it and it involves so many different places. I mean, we were told that this was a global compromise. It was just a really difficult story to get your hands around. Um, I mean, Reedy's appeal has been public since 2014. Uh, there but, have but, been bits and pieces, but, but not the whole scale. And and no one no one really knew. I mean, what Reedy was was uh, was uh, uh, blowing the whistle on right. uh, publicly was not known, right? And right. They knew that he that I mean the appeal was out there, but no one really knew what it was about. Exactly, exactly. It took uh, a lot of probing on behalf of Zach and I and various different areas uh, to, to get to the bottom of those questions. And you also in your story raised the intriguing um, possibility. Uh, that the Iranians and the Chinese and possibly the Russians were all ex- sharing information about this uh, communication system um, because the Iranians uh, breached it and then the Chinese did as well, but possibly because they were in contact with each other. Yes. So Zach and I were told uh, that these countries do share information like this and that they had suspected that um, the Iranians had shared it with the Chinese in exchange for uh, potential military material. It's it's unclear specifically for what. Um, but that was one of the most troubling aspects. I mean, it brings this whole idea of axis of evil to, to a place that's real, which is troubling. To, well, we to many uh, in, in the West, we have the five eyes system, right? Yes. Where the United States and Australia and Britain and Canada and who else? New Zealand? I can't remember. Yeah, what New that, Zealand. Uh, all um, are part of this, um, you know, kind of community that shares um, yeah, intelligence. I, m- maybe the Russians and the Chinese are developing the same kind of system. Um, the other thing that the story, I think, sheds light on is the kind of double-edged sword of, of technology in the intelligence world. Obviously, technology 
it can be a very powerful weapon for espionage, uh, but it also makes us vulnerable in, in a lot of ways. Talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, as soon as you introduce technology into the equation, you are creating vulnerabilities that are almost impossible to completely secure. That's the case for anybody, for anyone. Uh, you use Signal, phone encryption, these applications that people sort of describe as impenetrable. I mean, every reporter I know in D.C. is using Signal now. Um, but, you know, it, it's not impenetrable. If your source works for the government and someone can uh, get that phone from them and it's a government-owned phone, you're done. Yeah, I, I remember uh, uh, John Brennan, uh, when I was interviewing him a couple of years back, telling me that it's become a real problem in recruiting uh, spies and hiring new CIA officers because they've got these, you know, young people have these pretty big social media uh, footprints. And so Absolutely. they have to figure out how to scrub all of that if they have any chance of, you know, ever going undercover. Yeah, I was speaking to somebody about this just the other day about how the agency needs to think about these things in a totally new way. If you su suddenly join the CIA and you had a very public profile before, either in academia or just socially with your friends, you know, do you stay online? And I, I think the answer is yes. They, they encourage you to actually maintain that and not completely diverge from what you were doing before because it's a blinking red light to everyone that, oh, well, this person's not on Facebook anymore and I know that they're interested in, in China and have worked in intelligence previously. I wonder what they're doing now. You know, it occurs to me, Jenna, that uh, the compromise of the Iranian agents took place about the same time, correct me if I'm wrong, that the... Um, uh, that the Obama administration had uh, authorized the uh, use of the Stuxnet uh, virus to dismantle the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, and I wonder if there is any, any relationship there. Did some of these agents get used uh, in, in the Stuxnet operation? Did the compromise of uh, those agents uh, affect the uh, Stuxnet uh, assault on the Iranian nuclear program at all? So you're right to think that the timing is definitely concurrent. Uh, we actually have in the piece that part of the reason that the Iranians went on a mole hunt is because President Obama came out and said, we have these details about the Iranian nuclear program and we're putting pressure on them. And uh, that sort of set off the spark. It was and, actually the discovery yeah. of, of a secret nuclear facility, yes. right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that prompted the Iranians to find out how they we realized they had a mole uh, right. inside. And so then they went, they went on the mole hunt. And exactly. Then, and then one thing led to another and then they ended up exposing. Yes. And, and we have in the story that Israel provided us with that intelligence that that was the case. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's the reaction been uh, to your story in the uh, intelligence committee? I, sh I should note that uh, you had a ton of sourcing for this story. I mean, I think you talked to I yeah, I think we many, had 11 but... people, and I, I know that we could have gotten to more. Um, I was excited that Zach and I were able to team up on the piece. I, if you gave us another two months, we probably could have come up with another two dozen. Uh, but it's it's the kind of piece that I think has been lingering in sort of the ethos of the intelligence community for many years. A lot of people, particularly in the Department of Operations, uh, this caused them a lot of heartache, particularly because dealing with human sources, that's that's their bread and butter. And something that led to so many deaths is something that really just stays with them for a very long time. Um, so I think it was really upsetting for them to read the piece, but it was also a little bit cathartic to have those details exposed publicly. And I think the idea is that they hope that this leads to sort of not a reckoning, but kind of self-examination within the agency. Well, I'll be very interesting to see if uh, the new chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, 
uh, addresses this at all. Yeah, I, I tweeted that to him this morning, so we'll see. Good. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I, I... Has he responded? He Did has not. He has not responded. Well, I can already anticipate the follow-up uh, stories uh, to this uh, blockbuster scoop. Uh, really an important piece of reporting. Um, and uh, you've set the bar high for yourself. I don't yeah, you've I don't know if I'm gonna... for a few weeks. So, uh, <laughs> so what have you done? What have you done for me lately? That's exactly. going to be my next question. Anyway, Jenna McLaughlin, thank you so much for joining us on Skullduggery. Uh, I expect with the kind of reporting you're doing, you're going to be a regular. Uh, Look and forward to it. We're really pleased to have you. Excited to be here. Thanks to Joel Benenson and Jenna McLaughlin for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. And be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. We'll talk to you next week.